children of Israel were assembled again before they went into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. Their hero leader, Moses, who had been raised in the household of Pharaoh and then spent 40 years in the wilderness being trained by God for his next assignment, and then 40 years leading those people out of bondage in Egypt into the wilderness wanderings and then now at the very border of the promised land had died. And Joshua was the one who was going to lead them into that promised land. And before he did that, he wanted to remind them that, that the gracious God that saved them is the holy God that has expectations about them. That it's not burdensome upon them that the holy God would have expectations. It doesn't mean that God is unkind or that God is unloving. But what it means is that as a holy God, there are certain rules by which one must approach him. And there are expectations for how his people live. And so when Joshua brings the people together again, he reiterates what is called the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. And he explains to the people, first and foremost, that God is the God of mercy who took you out of the land of Egypt. And as a result, he is entering into a covenant with you. And we're going to write this covenant down on tablets of stone, and we're going to put it where everybody can see it and be reminded about what his part of the bargain is and what your part of the bargain is. And as you know, the people were never faithful at following God's commands. In fact, every time it's presented to them, it's usually with the caveat that I'm going to ask you to obey the commandments of the Lord. And by the way, we know you won't. But with people, were expected that when God gives his word, they're to give theirs in response. And the word he gives to them is these ten commandments. And when he gives the second commandment again about not having any idols, he says something that's caused some confusion over the years, and I want to start there as a way to clarify it. He says that for those who are guilty of idolatry, that God is going to visit the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And some people have interpreted that as saying that the children are going to have to pay for the sins of the fathers. That's not true. Because God is a God of justice and holiness, and he doesn't punish you for the sins of somebody else. There's enough sin that you've done on your own. But what does he mean by saying, I'll visit the sins? It's a word that means oversee or overshadow. It means that the decisions of the father will have an impact on the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren for good or for evil. And so because of that, Joshua reminds the people that each and every generation must make up their own mind to follow what God has told them to do. And there's the famous section where he says, you all have a tendency to hear the law and not follow it, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Households made decisions. Households had reputations. And households received judgment from God sometimes. 
This morning, I want to show you three households. I want to take a look at this from a gospel vantage point as we understand this, but I'm going to use three different examples throughout the scriptures to give you three different kinds of households. And I hope today you might find yourself to some degree or another in in one of these three. And likely you're going to see yourself in a little bit of the first and a little bit of the second and hopefully some of the third as well. The first household is the house of liberty. I put these in your bulletin so you would have them. The second is the house of law. And the third is the house of love. Three houses. The house of liberty. The house of law. And the house of love. There's a fascinating story attached to each of these. As you know, if you go to this church, I'm not like a storytelling pastor. But these are stories. They're narratives. They're fascinating accounts. And they're true. And the first one goes all the way back to a fascinating time in the history of Israel. Let me just give you a little bit of bridge between what we talked about with Joshua and what we're going to talk about now. So Joshua gives the people the law before they go back into the land, before they begin to occupy that. And for many years, uh, the people are constantly at war with the people who are in the land because the land wasn't vacant. The land was occupied. And God would give them victory over these armies and these nations and these tribes. But because the nation wasn't big enough to occupy all the land, he said, I'm going to give it to you incrementally. And so many generations passed. And what happened was the, the people began to cry out that God would give them a deliverer from their enemies. And for a period of time, he would raise up men and sometimes women called judges. The judges were people that were supernaturally empowered who would come in and they would rescue the people from their oppressors. And this period of the judges is what happened between the conquest of Canaan and when a man named Samuel came on the scene. And so right at the tail end of the Judges, in fact, you could read the book of Judges in your Bible, it would take you there. It ends by saying that in the land, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It's not that much different than today. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And in that particular environment, God has not been speaking to the people through his word for hundreds of years. And all of a sudden, he begins to speak again. He raises up a new prophet. And the prophet was not the one that people would have expected. This prophet was a little boy. He was a little boy who was the product of the prayers of his mother Hannah, who couldn't bear children. And God heard her prayer and gave her a miracle baby. And in response, she gave that little child back to serve the people in the temple. In fact, it's kind of a sad story. You saw those little ones that were up here. You know, little Samuel was given over to the people at the temple when he had been weaned. He wasn't very old. And that culture, about three years old. And, and there's this scene in the narratives about him that I always find touching. It's that every year when Elkanah and his family and Hannah, his wife, would go up, he, she would bring him a new linen ephod, a, a new linen new linen suit. And can you imagine every year it gets a little bit bigger? You know, every year she spends time hand sewing that that garment 
And each year it's, it's a little bit bigger, and she's thinking about her son and, and how big he's getting, and he's not there with her. He's, he's serving the Lord and the Lord's people. But this little guy was, was sleeping in the temple right by the Ark of the Covenant, which was the gold box that contained the law that I talked about earlier, that, that law that God gave the people that, that Joshua reminded them of. And he was sleeping beside it. And somebody said, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel got up and he ran over to the man who was responsible for him, a man named Eli, who was the, the high priest. And he says, what do you want? And Eli said, nothing. Why'd you wake me up? Go back to bed. And so he goes back to bed, and he hears it again. Samuel, Samuel. And he gets up, and he goes to Eli. Yes, what do, you, what do you need, sir? What do you need? He says, nothing. I need to sleep. I go back. And a third time it happens, and he says, you know what? I think I know what's happening here. He says, Samuel, uh, if you hear this again, I want you to say, I'm listening, Lord. You see, Eli realized that God wasn't going to talk to him, but God was talking to Samuel. And so that's exactly what Samuel does the next time it happens. And he tells Samuel something that, that is so hard to believe, he says, that the people of Israel, their, their ears are not going to be able to, 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 to handle it. It's something that is going beyond their ability to understand. The news that is coming is going to be so unbelievable that it's going to test everyone's faith. And he says to him, I am going to do this mighty work in this nation of Israel. But part of that mighty work is that I am going to judge the house of Eli. And Eli was the man that Samuel was working for. Eli was the high priest. Eli was the man. He was like a pastor. He was the person who was responsible for overseeing all of the sacrifices that were going on at the temple. And he says that I am going to judge the house of Eli because Eli is a man who has wicked sons who have blasphemed my name. In the morning, Eli said, what did God say? And Samuel was really scared as you would be too. So I don't want to tell you what God said. And Eli says, I know God told you something and may all of it happen to you if you don't tell me the truth. And so this little boy delivers a powerful message to Eli. He explains to him what God had told him. When God said to him in 1 Samuel 3 verse 11, behold, I'm about to do something in Israel at which two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I will declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or by offering forever. You see, God explained that Eli's sons were blaspheming him. How do we know that? Because Eli's sons were the guys that were actually performing the sacrifices. 
They were the ones that were killing the animals and, and burning them. And they were the ones who were supposed to be offering atonement for the sins of the people. And the great irony of it is that God says, these people who are acting like priests and pastors, they're doing things that are atoning for the sins of the people, but they themselves are not having their sins atoned for. They're not coming to God in faith believing that he will forgive them because they don't care because they don't want forgiveness. They want to blaspheme God and do whatever they want to do. And their father isn't restraining them. Do you think Eli wasn't aware of this? He was totally aware of what was going on. And in fact, he responds later on in this chapter to Samuel. And he says to him in verse 17, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more, even if you hide anything from me of all that, we told, that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, this is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the God who gave us the Ten Commandments that Moses and Joshua reminded us of. It is that God. Let him do what seems good to him. Brothers and sisters, this is an example of the house of liberty. This is what happens when a father does not care enough about the glory of God to manage the conduct of his sons. This is what happens when a father does not live up to what God has expected of us to be the ones who hold children accountable to what God has asked of them. The house of liberty is a house without restraint. The house of liberty is described here like in the house of Eli. And in the house of liberty, there is no restraint, and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. I'm speaking especially to fathers this morning, but the same applies to mothers. Scripture holds both accountable to the raising up of children and the nurture and admonition of the Lord. In fact, whenever wisdom is described poetically in the Bible, wisdom's a woman Women, you need to be teaching and leading your sons just as much as your husband. It's our responsibility together. I love the fact that there are so many examples in the Proverbs of wisdom being called a woman. What does she do? Even at the very end of Proverbs, there's an illustration, a metaphor described as a woman, all of her characteristics put into this one person who's not a, a real person. No one could live up to everything in Proverbs 31. So if some of you women have been trying to do that, let me, let me release you from that effort. Some of you are thinking, this is the best sermon I've ever heard. <laughs> don't worry. You don't have to be her. That describes what wisdom looks like when it would be manifest in a person. But this was the role here of Eli, and he failed. And what he did was create a situation where these tyrannical sons were eventually judged by God, where they both died on the same day, and his Ark of the Covenant was captured and taken to a pagan country. So, the first house is the house of liberty. And my encouragement to you today is to make sure that as you shepherd and guide your families, 
that you read often accounts like that of Eli and remind yourself that when the sins of the father are visited to the third and fourth generation, it doesn't mean those people are going to pay for your sins. It means that you're going to create an environment in which they commit their own sins, which are worthy of judgment. That's the first house. The second house is the house of law. Now, this is also a fascinating story. And this comes here into the house of David, David the king. And David, as you know, probably all of you, even if you haven't read the Bible, you, you know something about King David. Uh, king David was really a hero in Israel. His story is one of being called out from among 12 sons, the, the least likely of all the boys to be chosen. And he is the one who is anointed, interestingly, by Samuel. And yet, David, though anointed by God, though serving as a king, made some horrendous mistakes, committed some grievous sins. And one of them was that when he was out walking around in the evening, maybe kind of like you were last evening, it's the only time in the day when it's pleasant enough to be outside. <laughs> and maybe you're up there on the second story of your house, looking up at the stars, enjoying the cool evening breeze. He was supposed to be at war with everybody else, but he chose to stay back. And while he's up there taking a walk in the cool of the evening, he, he looks down on one of the other rooftops, and there was a beautiful woman taking a bath. And he looked at her, and he looked at her, and he kept looking at her until all of the natural carnal desires of his heart caused him to send his servants to get her for him. And he assaulted her. And then when he realized what he had done, and she reached out to him later and said, I'm pregnant, he did everything he could to hide his sin, which included murdering her husband by concocting a military strategy that would have left him dead. And so, David, as a consequence of this, lost that first son born to Bathsheba. The Bible says the Lord struck him. But he did something else, and that was that the sword never left his home. There was always bloodshed in the house of David. And this next story picks up on that. Because one of David's other sons through another woman, he had lots of wives and lots of concubines, but one of his other sons through another woman fell in love with one of his daughters. And as a result, he deceived her into coming into his room, and when she was there, he, he grabbed her and he raped her. And as a result, the brother of that daughter, who was from a different mother, I know it gets complicated, but he was so infuriated that he stewed on it for two years, and he came up with a plan and he asked King David to allow all of David's sons to come with him to a celebration they were having at the end of the season. And during that time, this brother, his name is Absalom, in response to the rape of his sister Tamar, told his men to go and kill the rapist whose name was Amnon. And that's what he does. Kills him, murders him in cold blood. And after that, he flees. And after a while, one of David's key military leaders 
says, David, this is a bad plan. You don't want a prince in exile. He wants to come back to the kingdom. He wants to be reestablished in his relationship. And it's a super bad idea for you to have an influential, charismatic prince out in some other region because it's going to cause instability in your kingdom. And David finally says, fine, you can bring him back. But he is only going to come back to live in his own home separate from me. And what you see here in the text of 2 Samuel 14, 24 is the response. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. This is the house of law. This is the house of dad that says, I make the rules, I set the standard, you do it my way, or there's no relationship. You earn it with me. I don't love you because you're my son. I love you because of what you do. I don't love you because you're my son. I love you because of what you've done. I don't love you because you're my son. I love you because you haven't crossed the line yet. Now, (laughs) we meet a wise woman. And my favorite characters in the Bible are the wise women. And David and his military leader, Joab, have so many experiences with wise women in the book of First and Second Samuel that you could write a book about it. In fact, David married a wise woman. This wise woman who was married to a fool, and I'm not being rude, his name literally meant fool. That was name is Nabal, his name meant fool, and I think people knew him pretty well because they gave him that name. And she did the right thing. She disobeyed her husband and saved the entire household when he had her to do a stupid, foolish thing. Eventually, he dies. David marries her. Her name is Abigail, one of the strong women in David's household. But there's also another wise woman, and her name is the the wise woman of Tekoa. And Joab goes out, and he gets her because he knows that David is susceptible to people giving him parables. And so what happened is she goes in, and she dresses up like she's mourning. And she goes in to meet with David, and she says, King David, I need you to help me, because my sons, when they were out in the field together, got into an argument, and one of them killed the other one. And that son who killed the other one has run to the city of refuge, but my people are rising up against him, and they want him killed. And and I don't know what to do, because he's the only son I've got left, and if they kill him, I'm going to be destitute. Please help me, because I don't want the people to rise up and take away this last heir. And David puts on his external morality like he likes to do. And he says, this is an abomination. You tell me who this person is and I'm going to make sure that I stand up for him and I defend him. And she says, thank you. And by the way, it's you. Now, I don't know if he had this flashback to Nathan. Remember Nathan gave him the story of the little lamb And David gets all angry again and self-righteous, and then Nathan turns around and he says, thou art the man. Well, that's how Nathan said it in King James, but it sounds so much better like that. Here David's like, oh, again, I gotta quit falling for these. She says, you're this man. Why do you allow Absalom to be exiled? Why do you take away Absalom as well? You need to restore him. He needs to become part of your household again. And David says, well, I don't want to talk to Absalom. I don't want Absalom being in my presence. I'm, I'm too good for Absalom. Absalom needs to follow my rules. But his heart is finally pricked by this reality. 
Eventually, he does allow Absalom in, but he doesn't really welcome him back. He doesn't reestablish the relationship. You see, in the house of law, in the house of law, where you've got to operate a certain way in order to earn favor, in the house of law, there is no relationship, and everyone just does what it takes to get attention. You know, there are very outwardly respectable, put-together families that are nothing more but legalistic arrangements temporarily held together by minors who live in that house until they can get out. Parents are shocked. I can't believe it. They went away to college, and all of a sudden, they lost their faith. It's like, no, they never had it. It was never cultivated. It was never really part of your relationship. They just learned how to function in your home without getting disciplined long enough until they could get out. You see, the law of, of liberty, the house of liberty says, well, I'm, I don't want to tell you what to do. The, the house of law says, I'm going to tell you what to do. And in both cases, kids learn how to adapt. Absalom eventually decided he was going to tear the whole kingdom down to get his dad's attention. There's this fascinating game in psychology called the ultimatum game. And, and this is kind of what you have in households like this, because the way this game goes is that I give one of two people $10. And, and I say to the person who I gave the $10 to that you can decide how to split it between the two of you. The only condition is you both have to agree to it. So I'm going to give you $10. You're going to have to split it with this person. And the only condition is that two of you agree. And so people think, oh, great. Well, then probably what's going to happen is you're going to give that guy $10, and that guy is going to talk to the other guy, and he's going to say, well, how about this? I'll take five, and you take five. Do you agree? And the guy says, yeah, that seems fair. Case closed. But what they found out was that people realized, hey, you know what? I bet he'd take four. Because, you know, four is better than nothing. Because if he doesn't agree to this deal, then we get nothing. I bet he'll take four. And so the guy says, okay, how about this? I'll take six, you take four. And what they found is that most of the time, people are like, whatever. You know, it's like, you're just a jerk, but whatever. I'll take the four. And then, then people think, you know what? How about, how about three? And they say, well, how about three? I'll take seven, you take three. And what they found out is that right when you get to about the three mark, this is what happens. The other person says, No. You say, wait a minute, why would you say no? You get three free dollars. They say no, because they would rather see you lose seven because of your greed than them get three. Brothers and sisters, the same thing can happen in the people around us. They can become so taken advantage of, feel so oppressed by your legalistic structure, feel so ignored by your liberty structure, that they finally say, I would rather burn the house down then see you succeed or be perceived as an effective parent. You see, Absalom was willing to literally burn fields. He was willing to mount a rebellion. He forced his father out of town, drove his father away to usurp the kingdom. The house of law, the house where there's no relationship. Well, let's talk about the third house and let's lift us up from the the ditch here. I know it's kind of a 
tough slogging. Let's go to the house of love. This is a beautiful story. And I know many of you are familiar with it. If you have your Bible and you want to turn to Luke 15, this is where it's kept. And, and Luke 15 is often uh, labeled in your Bible as, as the story of the prodigal son. But if you've been around this church for very long, if you've heard me talk about this, uh, you'll know that I, I, it really ought to be called the prodigal sons because you've got two sons here. You've got one son that, that is more the, the liberty-type son, and you've got another son who's more the law-type son. And, and, the, and the brilliance of this story is that both of them come together under the same roof. And the story goes like this. You've got a father, a loving father, a gracious father, a godly father. Listen up, fathers, please. You can be a loving, godly, gracious, biblical, grounded, spirit-filled father and still have children that don't follow the Lord. And if nothing else, may I just release some of you from that shame, perhaps, or guilt, or fear. All that stuff about responsibility still stands, but yet God, in his providence, doesn't guarantee that things will go the way we want it to. But in this house, you had two sons, neither of whom were walking according to God's law, God's will. And so the one son decides, here's what I'm going to do. I would like to have my inheritance, and I'm going to bail. And, and, and Dave wisely instructed you earlier while we were singing about what it means to be a son of God. It's very important when you translate the Scriptures, that you translate the Scriptures to what they mean so quite often it should say sons and daughters, and some translations don't, and I wish they would. It's sons and daughters. But other times it's sons, and some women might think, well, I wish I was mentioned. No, you don't. Because not only is that son male, but that son was the firstborn son. And he got a double portion of everything because he was responsible for looking after the family after the parents were dead. And so when we are talking about being sons, it's because Christ, the ultimate firstborn son, receives everything from the Father, and then we receive it, that share of his reward, because we're in him. But in this parable, you have a son who wants to have his inheritance. Well, that doesn't happen until the father's dead. The father has to settle all of his accounts. He has to divide up the inheritance. He has to give a double portion or set it aside for the older son, and the other son gets the other. And the son who runs away, takes his portion, and he squanders it on wine, women, and song. And there's a famine in the land where he went to. And before long, after he hires himself out as an indentured servant, that's what we call a slave in the Bible. A slave in the Bible was not the way that we think of slavery in, in our country like it was years ago. Slavery back then, generally you were, you were bankrupt, and so you would sell yourself into slavery for a distinct period of time to work off your debt so that you can get back out and get on your feet. Well, that's what this boy does. And he sells himself to somebody who sends him, likely a Gentile because the guy was keeping pigs, into the pen to feed the pigs. And he's gotten so low that he's sitting there in the filth of the pig pen wishing he could eat their food. And he remembers something. He says, you know what? My father's servants ate better than this guy's servants. I'm going to go back, and, and I'm just going to hire myself out to my dad. Shows you what, what a low view of his dad he had. 
I'm just going to go sell myself to my dad because at least then I'm going to eat better than trying to eat this pig food. And so he picks himself up and he, and he gets there and he starts down the road towards his father. And the narrative is so incredibly powerful that the people who heard this originally, like the Jews who are hearing Jesus tell this story, would have been shocked and appalled. It would have been cringy to them. Like they wouldn't even want to hear it. They would have been like shielding their eyes and covering their ears and being like, I don't even want to picture what this is like. Okay, to us, this seems all like, like romantic. Like we picture this in the movie and like it's all frosted around the screen and like, you know, here's dad and like the theme from Chariots of Fire is going in the background and he's like running out to meet his child. It was not like that to them. Like it says that he hiked up his, his robe and you know, men in those days didn't, didn't show their legs. You know, they didn't run. There is a certain point, right, men, you get to a certain age where like you just don't wear shorts. It's hot as it is out there. You're like, you know, I'm just, yeah, we're past that now. Well, this old man was, and he hikes up, and he's running, and he's humiliating himself by running out to see this child. And look what the text says. I put it in your bulletin. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. First, this is, this is meant to be God the Father. And God the Father is said to be driven by his compassion and he, and he runs out. He interrupts the child's plan the child starts to make this excuse like, oh, I'm going to come and I'm going to work. And he's like, just shut up. Just come in. He hugs him and he kisses him and then he clothes him properly, washes him up. He puts a ring on his finger and they go and they kill the fatted calf. They go and they kill the celebration animal. The celebration animal that was saved for the good kid. And this father is so filled with compassion and so filled with love and so acting out what God describes of his own love for us, that he can't contain himself and he throws himself around this child and welcomes him back. He doesn't say to the child, you know, tell you what, I'll put you on probation. He doesn't say, you go live in another house for a couple of years until I'm ready to see you. He doesn't say, you know, you really embarrassed me and the rest of the family. He doesn't say, um, Fine, you can come back, but man, it's going to be a real short leash. He throws himself on this child and pulls him back and embraces him in love. Jesus describes for us what his heart attitude is towards those who have come to him. He says in John six thirty seven, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You will never be cast out by the Savior if you come to Him. And you come to Him bringing your nothing, bringing your sin, bringing your condition. There's no cleaning up involved. There's no making yourself righteous and, and worthy. It's just a matter of going to Him and receiving from Him that, that compassion. It's believing that all your righteousness that is required in order to be in His presence is a righteousness that was earned by somebody else and given to you as a gift. But there's another boy here, and he's the other prodigal, and I just want to mention him too, and that's the 
son that stayed and didn't run away. That's the son that worked hard every day for his dad. That's the son that said, I will not celebrate with you. I will not go into that feast. I will not accept him the way you're accepting him. In fact, you're a fool, dad. You're an idiot. You have been taken. You're a joke. This is how he viewed his father. Not as one that was not going to receive him back because he wasn't good enough, but one that was too foolish to acknowledge how good he really was. And this son is just as hard in his heart as the other one. This righteous son who never did anything wrong, who always did his chores, who always honored his mother and father, who always followed the rules, who always got straight A's, who never missed his curfew, he's the one who shows that his heart is just as wretched. And at this point in the story, he's the one who's not converted. The other one is. And so within that house of of love that the father shows, you've got these two sons, one taking the liberty route, one taking the law route. And the difference is, isn't it beautiful? It was the one that went off the rails that comes back, not the one who followed the rules. Now the house of of love, according to 1 John 4, is a house that drives out fear. Love drives out fear. You realize that fear can be manifest in a household in both types of kids? There are kids who are so afraid of never measuring up to what their parents want them to do that they just go off and find their encouragement from somebody else. And there are kids who are so afraid that they're never going to measure up to what their parents want, that they almost work themselves to the bone trying to be externally conforming. And and what you have here is an example where this father extends his love to both of those kinds of people. And the prodigal who comes back receives compassion. And had that other prodigal needed it, it would have been there for him too. But see, the ultimate rejection isn't from the father, it's from the sons. And so here, the third house, the house of love, in the house of love, there is no rejection. In the house of liberty, there is no restraint. In the house of law, there is no relationship. In the house of love, there is no rejection. Every father, every mother, ready, poised to receive back this little one that would come to them even if they're not so little anymore. In the house of love, everyone does to others as they would have them do unto them. If I could give you just some brief words of application today, it would be this. Number one, in this house of love where there is no fear, I would ask that some of you maybe who tend towards the side of liberty would stop fearing your kids and start fearing God. Some of you perhaps are in that category where you're downright afraid of your kids. You don't want to take their phone away because you're afraid how they're going to respond. You don't want to discipline them because you're afraid of how they're going to respond. You don't want to tell them to stop dating that unbeliever or you're afraid because you're afraid of how they're going to respond. You don't, you're too, you don't have the guts to get into their life and do the ugly, hard, difficult work of shepherding them. And everyone knows it. I read somewhere a secular psychologist, and I'm not advocating for anything. If you know who this was, I can't remember his name, but he said something along the lines of, don't raise your kids in such a way that when they're grown, you won't like them. (laughs) That's great advice. Don't raise kids you don't like. We've all been around kids we don't like. 
And let's be honest, I'm not going to name any names. But you know, the people come to visit, and you're, you're, you're thinking, wow, I'm so glad they're gone. <laughs> like, the idea of not fearing them, the idea of leaning in on that, the idea of engaging in that, even when it gets really hard, is part of what it means to ultimately fear God. The flip side is this, and I want to be just as careful to say it. Another way of application is saying that we need to stop fearing God and start trusting Him. The other side is the one that all they fear is God, and they're afraid that God is going to somehow judge them in the end, that God is somehow going to put them up on a pedestal, and He's going to grade them. And since all they care about is external conformity, and all they care about is the grades, and all they care about is what place the kid came in in the race, they don't want to come in somewhere other than number one. They want the gold medal. They want to be viewed as respectable. And they're so afraid of what God is going to do. And they don't trust him, that God has given to them, the kids he's given to them, for the purpose of them raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He put it together. So let's show some trust. I believe you, Lord. I believe you gave me this child. This child that was really easy to raise. This child that's really hard to raise. This child that for some reason early on in life seems to want to follow you and, and obey you. And this other child that no matter what doesn't seem to want to. He gives you the soft hearts and the hard hearts. And the way to soften a hard heart is not to beat it down with law. The way to soften both the rebellious heart and the hard heart is the gospel. There's a book that we have recommended many times around here. It's called The Whole Christ. It's written by Sinclair Ferguson, and it's probably the most important book I've read in the last 10 years. And um, in this book, he outlines what it means to not fall into either the trap of legalism or antinomianism, which is a fancy word for no law, either too much law or no law. And at one point, in the book, he says this, and for this, I know I'm out of time, so I'm just going to share this one, one paragraph. He talks about how at the fall, everything disintegrated because people stopped believing that the love of God and the law of God go together. He says this was most found in the Pharisees. Quote, the Pharisees were men who believed in the holiness of God and in his law, in supernatural reality, in predestination, in election. And grace was a big idea to them. But the Pharisees believed in conditional grace, it was at the end of the day because of something in them that God was gracious to them. Their God was a conditional God. Here there was no, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk with money without price. No, for such unconditional grace can come only from a father whose love is conditioned by nothing outside of his own heart. You see, the Pharisees saw God as a conditionally gracious God. The Bible depicts God as a naturally condition-free God, giving his grace for nothing other than his own pleasure, because nothing you've done that warrants it, and the righteous standard you must meet as his creation is met in Christ. So I know there might be some of you here that are visiting, or maybe you're not a Christian even, and I just want to encourage you today to listen carefully to that message, that good news. That's the good news. The good news is that to this very moment, 
and that compassionate grace is being extended to you. And if you're here because you are just absolutely filled with shame over your pattern of sin, then I invite you to come to a compassionate God who loves you and will receive you as you are and and clothe you in the righteousness of Christ. And if you're here because you are exhausted from trying to earn his favor by doing outward acts of religion and you don't even want to try to teach your kids that because you know you're such a hypocrite, I invite you to do the same thing. Come to him and his compassion will overwhelm you. It is so liberating to be at rest in the gospel. We need to make a way to bring rebels to repentance. And we need a way to bring rebels home. The ones who are in our presence need to receive the gospel, and the ones who are afar need to receive the gospel. And may this truth be what pulls God's house together and makes it the blessing that we described back earlier in the service from Psalm 127. We're going to receive the Lord's Supper in a moment, and that is a picture of this offer of salvation that was given to us in the finished work of Christ, His body and His blood. So as we prepare to do that, I'm going to pray and ask God's blessing upon us and that we would understand and receive this from His kind and compassionate hand. Let's pray. Father, we are about to engage in this memorial for which we are so thankful and ask that you would allow us to receive it as chronic legalists who so often demand of others what we know we could never do ourselves and as chronic liberals who go out in in search of pleasure and only fulfilling our own wills and desires. Receive all of us. And Father, for those who have not put their faith in Christ and believing in the gospel, I pray you do the work that only you can do and that you would do it today. For it is in your name we pray. Amen.